For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. I am your host, Nick, and our guest tonight has many book series that she has written, The Dragon of Shadow and Air, Fringe Colonies, Minecraft Homes Adventures, and many more. She has written under multiple names, such as Jess Montefield, Amelia Price, Marie Woodell, and now Talia Beckett. Talia, please welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. How did are I, you? Did I pronounce all of those right? Yes, yes, though I, I don't think I've published under Marie Waddell. That's in, actually one of my characters. Oh, that's your character in the in that's the because that's a choose your own adventure book, right? Yeah. Okay. Like, oh, did I publish that under Marie Waddell? That's what oh, I, I might says. have done. That's actually, I, you might you might know that better than I do. <laughs> yeah, see, I do there my research. There are so many names I've lost track of one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I do my research. I do my research. I think that was on your on one of one of your profiles on one of the many yes. sites that has profile things. Because I read all of them. I go everywhere, yes. everywhere that has okay. a profile and a bio. I read them all, and then I go and I look. I'm like, oh, do I got these right? Do I have them? You've had all yeah. of these names. Tell us about kind of the process of you know from your first pen name or your author name, and kind of what caused the changes or why because. From what I understand, each of them has a little bit different of a story. Yes. Um, so I started off with Jess Mounterfield because that was my name at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the first early books came out under Jess Mounterfield. Um, and I played around um, Marie Waddell, which is the one that you mentioned that I'd forgotten about. Um, that was actually one of my early characters. And then I used that name as a character name in a game. And that's where the Choose Your Own Adventures came from. I was okay. playing an online game at the time as, as Marie Waddell because it was good. I like to role play. It's a lot of fun. Um, I'm sure we'll get to that later. We will too. definitely get into that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it started off with my actual name. Um, and then I mostly wrote fantasy, sci fi, a little bit of historical, um, which is what I started with. But then I decided that I wanted to try something really, really different. And I started writing the Mycroft Holmes books you mentioned. And I wanted to pick a new name for that because a lot of the advice at the time for indie authors, which is what I was, um, was that you have to be very careful about genre hopping. So I was like, if I'm trying something that's a mystery and it it was slightly quirky, it was slightly paranormal, they were like, okay, put it out under another name and see what happens. So that's when I chose Amelia Price um, as the name for that series. Um, but it still says on the cover, Jess Mountfield writing as. Right. So it's not like I'm hiding it. Um and then the the more recent stuff is coming out under Talia Beckett, which is my name now. And everything will slowly move over to Talia Beckett. I'm bringing it all back under one name. Okay. But it's going to take a little while to, to for it to all get there. So you're going to be republishing all of your past books then? Not all of them. Some of them I have pulled and decided they will stay forgotten to the, yeah. To the People don't need to time. read some of the early ones. <laughs> they really don't. Um, but the, um, yeah, it should sometime probably in the next year or two we'll start moving it all over and a lot of the books that are coming out now we're tagging them on amazon with both author names and then at some point we will hopefully ask amazon and all of the other big book publishers to basically merge the two okay. author pages and all of the author data into one okay great do you think that there will be any issues with older readers not knowing like they come across I'm a hoping new book not. and they're like i i didn't even know I'm hoping not because we're tagging both for now. Mm -hmm. um, and I have made it so that a lot of the author information for Jess Mountfield now says, Jess Mountfield has a new name. Please go, please go to Talia Beckett. <laughs> um, and we've been doing that already for about a year. So okay. it, it's, we're taking our time to make sure that we don't lose as many readers as possible. 
when you were first starting out, because you're kind of a self-made writer, what was the process on your first releasing your first book? Did you have a lot of sources out there to help you? Or was it just like, I'm just going to do this and do my best and cross my fingers and hope it works? Um, it was a, it was a little bit of both. I wouldn't say there were a lot of resources to help out, but there was definitely like, it wasn't like, you know, the Wild West where you're suddenly out there on your own trying to forge a living. Um, it had been established, like Kindle had been established for a couple of years. Amazon had opened the floodgates to self-published authors. And although I would say I was a relatively early adopter, there were authors like um, J.A. Conrath was a big one who was publishing a blog almost every day talking about his self-published numbers and how he had switched from traditional publishing to self-publishing, and which is what it was called then. Now, now you're just an indie. But right. back then you were a self-published author and you were scum. <laughs> like oh, yeah. When I first started, I, but I first published the, the first one in 2010. And it was, it was an interesting time to be publishing books as an indie author. Did you start off just doing like ebooks and Kindle and stuff like that? Or did yeah. you have physical copies as well? Um, for about the first year, it was just the ebook. And it took me a lot longer to figure out how to do the print side of things and do it well. Yeah. Because um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to just throw it out there and look like a self-published author. I wanted to try and get it as good as possible the first time out. And I definitely still made a whole bunch of mistakes anyway. But I tried to, you know, do my best. So I had um, my uncle-in-law at the time was a graphic designer. So I got him to sit down with me and, and help me do the front cover and make sure it was at least, you know, it looked good. It didn't look like I'd homemade it. Yeah. Um, I hired an editor for the first book and yeah, I just, I just did what I could really. How hard, because you, it sounds like you were there during the transition from like Kindle and e-readers to like an Amazon store where you're selling your self-published books in Amazon and getting them listed there. How hard was that transition and, and getting in there to, to work on that? It was actually surprisingly easy. Um, Amazon have really done a good job of trying to make it easy for authors. And in the early days, because there were so few eBooks, except for the traditionally published ones that were actually massively ridiculous prices, they were putting them out there for the same price as the hardback. And everyone was like, but there's no physical cost involved. What do you mean you want $20 for a, an ebook? And all us indies were throwing them up there for three or four. And they were all like, okay, we'll buy the indie book. So actually at the beginning, there was a lot of like, okay, this might be a crap book and you might even have a crap cover and you might not have a clue what you're doing, but it's so much cheaper than what the traditional authors were offering that actually a lot of us at the very beginning were like, we, we're making a, you know, a decent amount of money. It, it, it's not actually very hard to find the readers at this point. But then as soon as you got that kind of news out to people, you suddenly had all these people throwing books up there that really weren't as good. And then you started to get the complaints and the people going, oh, self-published authors are scum. These are all really crap books. There's a reason there should be gatekeepers. And it started to get a bit of a bad rep for a little while. Yeah. And then the, basically the self-published authors that were serious basically upped their game. They had to. And you started to have to have a good cover and you had to have a good blurb and you had to have it edited and edited well, like, you know, and you had to basically try and look like a traditionally published author. Yeah. One, we've had so many authors on here that are well-known, super popular, that all, they just self-publish, you know, there's very few that don't, even, even the ones that come on that are, you know, we brought in from from a, a publisher that's like oh here you know can you have this person on the show almost all of them are like well yeah i have those but i also have my my self-published ones which actually do way better yeah yeah so i mean there's there's something to be said about like i said earlier a self-made author because not only do you have to go through the trials and tribulations and you but you know both ends of the spectrum like you sell a really popular book and you know what that takes, but you also know what it's like when you're just starting out as opposed to, you know, you don't necessarily know that story for a lot of other, a lot of other people. So did you have any issues with uh, audiobooks? Did you, cause, cause you have at least one audiobook series. I think you have two, right? That are in um, audiobook. Is it just one? I have two. I have two, two in okay. audiobook. Um, I have a collaboration series with Dawn Chapman, mm -hmm. which is my, my lit RPG um, books that I worked with her on. Um, they were the first audio books I had. She pretty much handled all of that for me. She already had um, a narrator for that series. 
So I just got to go along for the ride, which was okay. actually a lot of fun. I it just, she sent me files. I got to listen to them. I got to get excited. And then my newest set of audiobooks um, are the Dragon of Shadow and Air series. And to some degree, I also kind of have been able to go along for the ride with those ones. I got to pick my narrator okay. um, out of a pool of, of auditions. Um, but mostly because Tantor have have handled those, um, they they bought the rights. So I was kind of like, okay, let's see what happens when someone big buys the rights. Right. But it, that's been an interesting journey. Um, I'm actually getting Poseworth for the people that know him often in the chat, I think. Um, he's actually going to be narrating my Guild of the Eternal Flame series. He's about halfway through book one right now. Okay. So. Well, that's excellent. I, I would, I, I'm wait. kind of bringing it back a bit in-house because I think I'd like to do it myself and see how that goes. Yeah. And you'll have to make sure that, you know, you have it uploaded to Audible and all the places and get all their things. I, and I don't really know how that works. Uh, I've had a couple audiobook narrators on the show and I'm, and I'm still like, I still don't understand how you guys get it from point A to point B where, you know, someone's paying for it, but I'm glad because I do audiobooks pretty much specifically now, just because it's so much easier for me to get through them. And I did, I did listen to uh, the first book of your shadow and air series in audible. And it was, uh, and I totally said that wrong. But you know what I'm talking about, the, the Dragon of Shadow and Air. Yes, uh, Dragon was, of Shadow and Air, yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed that series, and, I, and I'll, I'll talk awesome. about that here in a bit. But tell us a little bit about, for you, the editing process, because you write characters. You know, you've got such the wide scope, whether it's, you know, in the Mycroft series or the Shadow and Air. How is it writing a character that might not necessarily have the same kind of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? The same kind of lingo, I guess. Okay, okay. So say so say you're writing somebody that's an American, for instance, and you use, you know, certain terms like we don't necessarily like we say gas station over there, you you know, very often it's not gas station, it's what, petrol? It's it, petrol station. Petrol yeah. station or garbage is rubbish. Yeah. And it's said differently. How do you balance out like I'm writing an American person and making sure you leave out the terms that aren't used over there or over here and are used, well, you know, back and forth. A lot of the time that came down to my editor at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like I had to be taught a lot of the terms. I had a slight advantage in that I grew up in the US. Yeah. Or at least I spent two or three years there when I was younger. Um, so I knew some of the differences. Um, but I still, I wrote it all originally in American English with the in British English, sorry, with the British terms for everything. And then would have to essentially just part of the second draft go through and change as much of that as I recognized. Yeah. But it's even now the editors will come back to me and say, you're still getting this one wrong. You're still saying a block of flats rather than an apartment block. You're still you know, like, there were a few of them. I don't think I'm ever going to remember to do the right one. Right. But it's, it's, I think being immersed in the American world um, because I play games with American people right. and all that sort of stuff. And Poseworth is American. So sometimes that helps. I'll say to him, is this slang British? If I said this, would you understand? Right. Do you know what I'm talking about kind of thing? So sometimes even while I'm writing now, I'm very conscious of being like, okay, what's the American for this? Um, I now write in American English. So I will write with the American spellings. Um, and I will write as much as possible with the American variants of everything. Yeah. Of course, unless you're writing somebody who's not a character in a from Unless I'm writing Mycroft, in which case I have to suddenly go British again. <laughs> <laughs> what was, tell us about Mycroft. Tell us about that and how that came about. Because I'm really, uh, I'm a big fan of all of the, you know, the Sherlock Holmes pantheon of things. Yeah. Um, so it really started for me when the BBC did the first Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay. And I watched the first episode and I'd heard of Sherlock. I'd talked about Sherlock. I knew some of the Sherlock stories. I'd watched the Disney version with the mouse, <laughs> you know, like all of that kind of stuff. Like I'd done yeah. the kid versions of Sherlock, but that was the first moment that it kind of woke me up to like the adult version of Sherlock and yeah. what Sherlock could really be. Yeah. And so I, I then burned through the entire collection of stories in the space of about two months. I got one of the big hardbacks with yeah. all of them in. Um, but it wasn't really until sort of two or three years later when they brought out the third season that I felt like I could even approach it as another writer. I was like, I'm, there's no way near, I'm, I'm nowhere near as good enough a writer to actually tackle something like Sherlock or Mycroft or anything like that, because they're too smart and you've got to be 
a really good writer to write smarter than you are. Right. And to make it seem like you're smarter than you are, than yeah. you actually are. Um, so I think it was watching the third season and there was just, I, I can't remember which episode of the season, but there's one of the scenes with Mycroft where I just, I got to the end of this, the episode and I just said to one of my friends who was watching it with me, I get Mycroft now on a level I didn't before. And I would really, really like to figure out how someone would just get Mycroft to like them. What kind of person would you have to be to get Mycroft to even like you? Because he doesn't like anybody. Right. And so we just sat down and I think we spent the next two or three hours just trying to figure out if there was anyone who could exist with any kind of background or any kind of story who could get Mycroft to like them. And it was just, it was just meant to be for fun. Like I didn't really care. I was just that curious about the character. I wanted to find it out. And I think by the end of the two hour conversation, we had the idea for the, for the first four or five books. And I was just like, actually, I could write a story about someone just trying to get Mycroft to like them. And how did you approach that? Cause isn't there a whole, like, isn't there an ownership thing that had to be dealt with and like rights and all that kind of stuff? Or was it to the oh. point where it was already public? That's one of the fun things about the Sherlock world. Um, most of it, but not all of it, is out of copyright. I th I'm not sure if the last 10 stories are out of copyright yet. The copyright laws changed partway through the, the Sherlock series of being published. So the first set of stories is out of copyright. And as soon as the character is out of copyright in one story, you can use the character in those versions of the story. You can't use the character development from the stories that are still copyrighted, but you can use anything that is in the early stories. So okay. Mycroft and Sherlock and all of that are fair game. That's awesome. Was that a lot of extra fun for you? And did how did it flex your writing skills to, to go into that genre? Well, to start off with, it, it just the whole having to write someone else's character and keep it consistent mm -hmm. was a huge challenge. Like I, I hadn't had to try and do that before. So in terms of writing characters, it was like a really good learning exercise, but also it was a lot of fun to then take that and play with it because my, my Minecraft series isn't set in the original um, era. Um, I've deliberately aged them and they're immortal. So okay. it's still Minecraft and it's still Sherlock, but it's set 150 years later and they have all the memories and all of the stuff from the previous stories. Um, but Watson is dead and Sherlock and Minecraft are the only ones left alive. Oh, that's a, that's kind of a bummer. I like Watson. I mean, I like Minecraft and Sherlock just a bit more, but <laughs> what, um, what, what made you think, Hey, let's, let's fast forward the timeline or let's make them older. And I think it was probably a little bit of inspiration from the BBC series. I wanted to play with them in the modern world as much okay. as reading the book had inspired me and made me think I would, at some point in the future, I want to write about Sherlock and Mycroft or at least Sherlock. It was, it was having that modern Mycroft that made me go. I actually really like the idea of a modern Mycroft. And I wanted to, like one of the one of the things we talked about in how would we get Mycroft to like someone, we felt like we had to have him having been softened up by something. And the only way we could think was, what about the boredom of being immortal? What about, because you know, we, we went through all of these possibilities of how do you get anyone like to be interesting enough to Mycroft. And we basically decided that Mycroft would actually have to be a little bit more gentle. <laughs> than he was in any of the stories he'd actually have to be bored did you have anybody come back to you and be like this isn't this isn't Minecraft. this isn't how he's supposed to be did you get oh, any pushback course. on that character of course of course and how do you, yeah, how do you and personally not not in not dealing with them but how do you internalize that and like deal with that without getting too hard on yourself um I think it's a process that I've learned over the course of publishing the books because I've gone through the period where everyone's like, oh, self-published authors are scum. And I've had a lot of reviews just from people who are, I, I guess, jealous or whatever. So I, now when I see a review, I'm just like, I just take it with a pinch of salt. It, it's very clear, or it's usually quite clear if it's the person's issue or if it's my story's issue. And often... I kind of find that if you if you wait until you've got lots of reviews or lots of feedback and half of it saying this is good and half of it saying this is bad, you can just ignore the ones that say it's bad because then it's just an opinion yeah. and it's just a preference based on that person. I only usually worry if the people who normally love my work are also saying, oh, this is a problem. You've not got this right. You've you know, mucked this up or whatever. But usually, I mean, I have beta readers now, so they usually tell me fairly early on in the process if something is wrong.
how does that work? How does your beta readers process work? Because everybody, every author seems to have a little bit of a different selection of how they do it. Some people, you know, they, they take random people from their, you know, their newsletters or it's people they personally know or stuff like that. What is your process? It's a bit of a mix. Um, I have a few people that that I've known personally that I've I've shoved the book under the nose of a few times and been like, what do you think of this? Um, I have a friend who I run a lot of the magic systems and the world building and the big bads by. I like I will sit down with him and be like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? I'm stuck on this, you know, and get some feedback that way. And th- that's probably my first person that I go to um, whenever I have an idea. In fact, I sat down with them a couple of weeks ago and planned out a bit more of the magic system for my current series to be like, okay, I need more of this. Um, but then I will take it to um, probably oh, the stream, I suppose, is probably the next place where people see it because I live right on the stream. So there are things that it, they've picked up on um, that have helped as well. And then the first book in a series will go through an extra set of readers with the publisher that I currently publish through. Okay. And they have their own team who will pick up on everything. Okay. And so, but it's, that's only usually the first book of a series. I don't tend to worry too much once I've got the first book sorted because at that point I'm rolling. And as long as everyone likes the characters, I don't usually struggle with plot issues at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you've already got it kind of in their mind, what it is and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Let's talk about the fringe colonies because the covers okay. of that, I see that and I'm like, this is not, you talked earlier about changing up genres a little bit. And this looks like one of those situations where it's another little bit of a little bit more of a sci-fi looking book you want to tell us about it yeah fringe colonies is um a set of books that is actually based on real life and i know that sounds a bit weird when you're talking about sci-fi um but it's it's the books i wanted to write about a game i used to play um my very first mmo was a little cutesy game called puzzle pirates and you have these little kind of chibi cartoon pirates and you're playing all of these puzzles to get your ship to move and to, to make things in shops and to do all of these sort of piratey based activities to sword fight with people and things like that. And I met a lot of really, really great people. And they were the people that got me writing in the first place. So my first book was a pirate themed like romance. Um, and then I kind of, you know, I drifted out of the game, lost touch with people. And then unfortunately, one of the one of the people that introduced me and Poseworth to each other, um, he died. He had a seizure. And I'd been talking to him the day before and we'd been talking about playing Puzzle Pirates and how much it was a big part of especially my early adult life. And I, I you know, I kind of like obviously I was really upset. And then probably about six months later, I was like, I need to do something to honor these guys and the the role they played in my writing life and the fact that they got me writing. Um, and I just, I just thought I need to, I need to write some of our story, but I didn't want to go back to the pirate fiction because I tended at that point to write more sci-fi, more fantasy. So I was like, well, what if I write essentially space fantasy? Um, so I, I translated it into a space pirates kind of feel rather than a, a like, you know, 1800s, 1700s kind of feel. Um, and I wrote basically across the five books, the story of some of the stuff that we got up to. And I had to embellish things. I had to change things here and there, but actually a lot of it is stuff that in one way or another actually kind of happened. Did those characters show up in your story? Um, you're like, you're the, the person who had passed away. Did they show up as a yes. character? Yes. He's Ike in the, in the story. And is that um, a prominent character or just like, yes, a, okay. Yes. Not, not the, the major character. So I, I did it from my point of view. So the main character kit is me. It, it's kind of that simple. It's the first time I've done a full self insert. Yeah. Like, okay. yeah, that's me. Okay. Um, Poseworth is also in there as Rin. Okay. Um, but he doesn't appear, I think until the end of the second book. Um, so I didn't meet him right away. Um, and then, yeah, there's a friend of mine called Dylan who is, he's, he's Dante in the books. And sometimes on my Discord server, you can see Waru and that Sky um, and Runase, who is, oh, what did I call him in the books? I actually can't remember what I called him in the books. Taryn, I think. Um, but that, yeah, they're all there. Like, these are real people. Uh, and I got back in contact with them all to write the books. And that's actually how Poseworth and I got talking again. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that, that led to a lot of things, those five books. That's awesome. 
is that a book are any of these other books uh, we talked about audiobooks are any of are you planning on doing any of your old books in audiobook for the future yes i'd like to do the fringe ones um poseworth and i are talking about doing that as a duet i think okay. i'd like to do that myself so okay we will see but um it's kind of one of those things where a lot of my earlier work it isn't as good because i was still learning on the job yeah. um so some of them, I think they'd need to be polished up. I'd need to go through them again and have them edited again before I could ever consider something like audio for them. Yeah. But yeah, definitely for some of them. I would I would like to see them see them in audio, but audio takes a lot of effort. It does. It does for sure. A lot of effort or money, you know, depending on how yes. you want to do it. Yep. Well, let's talk about one of your newer books. Uh, I mentioned okay. earlier the series A Dragon of Shadow and Air. That's obviously I mentioned earlier, like I've listened to that on audiobook, but you released those pretty quickly back to back with each yes. other. Was there yeah. a reason for that? Did you just write them all out and then eventually it was like, okay, one's out two months later, one's out three months later, one's out. What what was the um, thought process behind that? That is my current publisher's strategy. They are very much like a rapid, you get the books out in a series all really close together because a lot of readers... They actually don't want to wait a year for the next book. Right. And I can write that fast. So why not? It's yeah. kind of like the attitude. And it surprises a lot of people that I can write that many books a year. But when you actually look at a lot of the original, like main fiction writers, some, like someone like Charles Dickens, he wrote 2 million words a year for over 10 years in a row. And we look at that and think, how does anyone write 2 million words? Like for the length of my books, that's about 24 books. He was writing two books a month for over 10 years. That's crazy. Yeah. So I'm like, well, if Charles Dickens can do that and everyone looks at his stuff and is like, this is the height of literary fiction, then why can't we now like yeah. write that, that kind of level? So I don't write 2 million words a year because I think personally that is insane. <laughs> but I, I, I aim for a million. Um, so that that's 12 books a year easily. So, so love, that, that's one a month. I love the concept of it. Cause it's kind of like, it's kind of like a modern urban fantasy meets Aragon essentially is kind of the way yeah. I looked at it. Yeah. Was that an inspiration for you for the series or was it just like an afterthought? You're like, Oh, wait a second. This is kind of similar to that, but it's an urban fantasy. Um, I've never read Aragon. Okay. I have, I haven't read it at all. I just really, really love dragons. Yeah. Um, and after the Fringe Colony series, I'd handed that to a, a publisher that very much um, specialized in sci-fi. And he was like, you are a great writer. You are clearly very driven. You can write fast, but your voice doesn't lend itself to sci-fi because it's a very male dominated genre. And you write like a, a woman, you write the way a woman would want to read. So he was like, why don't you try urban fantasy? And I was like, I don't even know what urban fantasy really is. Okay. Um, and I thought, you know, like, oh, that's Dresden Files. Yeah. Like if, if, you know, if anyone said to me, what's urban fantasy, my brain would have been like, oh, Dresden Files. It, it's wizards and witches and, and mystery. And I wasn't really like excited about writing that. And then he was like, no, 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 no. Go check out these books by these female urban fantasy writers. Right. And they were all things like dragons and elves. And I was like, okay, this is Tolkien, but in the real world. Yeah. This isn't this isn't witches and wizards in the real world. This is Tolkien in the real world. Yeah. And I was like, at that point, it was like my brain lit up. And I was like, I found my genre. I found my home. I found the things I love to write. And I think that was some of what fueled that Dragon of Shadow and Air series coming out so fast. I was quite happily writing a book in four weeks because I was like, I want to write the next one. I want to yeah. write the next one. I want to know what these dragons are doing next. Um, and it played into all of my strengths. Like I'd, I'd spent a lot of time getting really good at fantasy. I'd spent a lot of time writing about characters and the, and the, I have a romance pen name that we don't talk about. Um, I missed one. You're I, telling me I missed one. <laughs> you, yeah. It's not, it's, it's not public uh, that it's me. So it, it's very hidden. Um, but then, and also I'd spent a lot of time writing actions and battles and stuff like that. And, and everyone said, oh, your strengths, it's funny, your strengths are the characters and the romance and the angst, but also the battles. Like, how do you combine the two? And female-led urban fantasy is where those two come together. Yeah. And I like the fact that it's, you don't have, like, like you said, like, it's something that a, a woman would like to read. But I, I thought that that, I really enjoyed it. And I'm like, I can't wait to get through the rest of the series, obviously you know, I've got a pile on the side of my along, 
But I can't wait to get through the rest of that series because it's just so fascinating to me the the concept of it. Like I know a lot of I know a lot of urban fantasy. I've gone through a lot of urban fantasy, but this is to me feels like a little bit different of a twist on that genre to me personally. So I uh, I was really enjoying it. How did you you mentioned earlier um, you found somebody to do the audiobook narration for that and it was kind of fell into that. Was there any communication between you and the narrator on anything, you know, whether it's pronunciation of words or, you know, how, how should I do this scene? Because your narrator is very good at um, portraying the different characters separately and not just being a narrator and like performing it. Was there any communication yeah. between you? There wasn't, there wasn't a lot actually, um, because I got to choose from a bunch of auditions I um I was very particular in who I chose. I was very much like I want someone who can who can handle multiple characters and actually really bring the characters to life because that's my favorite part. If right. I'm if I'm being very, I'm very character driven in what I write, so I wanted them to bring the characters to life. Um and that was one of the big reasons I chose that narrator. Um she is very very good at what she does. Yeah. For sure. But yeah, other than a pronunciation guide that I provided for book 1, yeah. I have not really done anything else I, I just pronunciation on some of the names and some of the terms and that was it and off she went so okay. and I, i'd rather do that i'd rather let the narrator be free to interpret the book how they feel is right because at that point i've done my job or at least i feel like i've done my job and if i've done my job well then if they do their job well on top then we end up with something great without me having to interfere yeah yeah for sure and there's always i've, I've heard so many people say you know when people come up like how do you pronounce this character's name however you want to pronounce it it's it's i wrrote it but it's your book sort of thing and, and it yeah. sounds like you're kind of like in a little bit in that mentality of of things what do you think sets set this book apart from the rest of your previous books because obviously this it, did this did much more yeah it did it suddenly took off this is the book that made my career the dragon of shadow and air um are probably the other books that made me go from from selling a hundred of you know a hundred copies every month maybe to to thousands so um it was kind of the point where i was like i think it was a passion that the fact that i had found the genre that merged all of my strengths into one book or one series um but also i think partially the the rap the rap rapidity the speed okay. um yeah, of yeah. bringing them out like um, yeah but also i had them with the right publisher um we switched publisher for that series okay. my sci-fi publisher was like i can't do an urban fantasy series justice but i can introduce you to someone who can yeah. and they actually they basically made that happen for me they were actually really really lovely um and they basically handed me the right publisher and they had a lot of big urban fantasy authors with that kind of urban fantasy already and i could basically then just they send it out to their newsletter they send it out to this and it was the original covers and blurbs that I had got for them thinking that you know this was going to be me done by me and then I handed this over to a publisher and they just they just had the right people to sell it to they already knew who needed it and yeah. who the audience were and they just did the rest so um I think it was a combination of, of all of that and striking at the right time and just yeah it's let's, kind of hard to say exactly what it was. That yeah, let's talk made about the covers go. for a second. Those covers are be- beautiful and gorgeous, and they're all, you can tell they're all different books, but they all look very similar to each other. Yeah. Did you, yeah. did they, did they do all of that, or did you have a hand in that? Um, I actually ended up finding the cover artist for that one. Okay. Um, I found, I can't remember what website I found them on. And this is really bad. I can't remember their name either. Okay. Um, hold on. I right. could probably look it up. I can look it up. <laughs> I do know the name of the other author. I've asked, I, because I don't interact with them directly because the publisher handled it. Yeah. I was like, I don't need to know this author's name. I literally found the first cover on a pre-made cover website and was like, that's the cover. I want that cover. Yeah. Um, and then we got the cover artist to design all of my covers since they have done every single cover I've had since. That's awesome. Um, it's not like me to forget a name. Well, <laughs> you know, there's so much to this. try and remember, especially when you're sitting down and you're put on the spot, you know, it yeah. happens and it's, you know, it happens so often that you you have no idea. So no. I've remembered it. Someone called Bandre. It's his it's his online name. I don't know his real name. Okay. B A N D R E I. Okay. 
Bandre. There we go. Shout he out designs to my covers. Or she, actually. Or I she? don't actually know. Yeah. I don't know. Gender. Shout out to them. Shout out to Bandre. <laughs> um, but yeah, they designed my covers. So yeah, those are they've um, done all of the Dragon of Shadow and Air 12. Um, and they're also now doing my Dragon Apparent series, but they're also doing my collaboration series with Andrew Bellingham okay. and all of the Time of the Dragon series as well. That's great. And yeah, just it fits the genre, I think, super mm-hmm. well. And it, 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 you get a sense of it, the it character pops. and what's going on. Yeah, very much. Well, let's talk about your Dragon Apparent series. So this is your new okay. series, right? Your new work yes. series. Yeah. And it's doing super well from, from our conversations, right? Yeah, it had a bit of a rocky beginning. We had a little bit of trouble with the publisher. I say trouble with the publisher. We had trouble. My editor died, which oh. is a really, really sad thing to happen. They weren't actually someone I knew because of the way the new, the, the publisher I'm with at the moment works. Um, it goes through quite a process. Yeah. Um, and because I'd, I'd done a lot of work on the Dragon of Shadow and Air series, so the publisher didn't actually, the editor didn't actually have to do that much for those. So I never really interacted with them, but they died right before the first book of Dragon Apparent um, was handed into the, to the publisher. And they tried to find me another editor and I didn't mesh well with the next editor of the book. We were just like, oh, this is not like, it was almost like we just didn't understand each other. Right. So we, we had a moment where the first book came out and I was like, I'm not happy with this. Um, so we delayed the rest of the series while okay. we were, you know, we found an editor that I was, I was happier with. And that's, that's completely sorted now. And the publisher were great with it. It was like, I'm, I want to make sure I'm not slagging off the publisher. The publisher were great at handling it. It was just, yeah. Yeah. We needed a, an editor. Some people with a just don't difference. gel, you know, you can be as professional yeah. as you want and you can have the same interests, but sometimes there's just a, a gelling that just yeah. doesn't happen. And I think they were, they, from what I could gather and from what it felt like, they were used to um, editing books for a male audience and okay. they were more used to editing the sci-fi and that sort of thing that I would, like, if I'd been writing a sci-fi like Fringe, they'd have been the perfect editor. Yeah. If I was trying to sell to the to that audience, but I wasn't, I was trying to write the urban fantasy for women and I felt very much like it stripped out some of that feminine from the main character. So I was like, no, put it back. Um so we are, yeah, we had differences, but it's been it's been completely sorted now. So now the series is rolling. So it got off to a slow start, but the last I'd say probably six to eight weeks, it's kind of really picked up um, and really started to outsell everything else. So can you give us a little synopsis of what the what the book and book series is about? Okay, Dragon Apparents. Um, it's it's still very much dragons, um, urban fantasy dragons in the modern world. Um, but this one, the main character, um, she's been brought up in the human world and she thinks she's a human. And then suddenly in the first book, her mentor goes missing and she's like, okay, what's happened? So it, it kind of starts with that kind of more mystery feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she she basically is in a, a panic situation and just transforms into a dragon because that's the only way to get out of the situation. So she suddenly finds she is a dragon. And she's just been in human form the whole time? And she's been in human form the whole time. Okay. Okay. Um, and then it's about her discovering her powers, discovering who she is, discovering the dragon world, going to a dragon city. And I like to start with the um, the fantasy element hidden from the human world. So yeah. I have all these hidden cities scattered across the world. Um, and I've, I've picked a location just a little bit north of the LA for the main city of this particular dragon world. And it's, it's all about her trying to, I've gone a bit darker with this one too. So the bad guys are actually more kind of, corrupted demonic creatures so there's a little bit more um being chased by demons in the dark down dark alleys and all of that kind of stuff Um, and her trying to learn how to fight those but they can only be killed with magic and that kind of sort of thing do you have to do a lot of research when you're like looking okay well if i'm gonna have a hidden city where am i gonna put it how is it gonna you know how am i gonna explain it to my audience you know say they live in la and they you know do you have to do a lot of research for stuff like that google maps is amazing especially (laughs) google street view yeah um, I have definitely walked around a lot of LA on Google Street View because I am nowhere near LA. Right. Um, and it, occasionally I will do that. Um, sometimes I'm just like, I, I will ask someone American and be like, dude, where can I set this that, you know, is it, similar to this? Sometimes I'm just a bit vague. Like I know that Texas is a desert and there's a lot of desert areas and same with Arizona. So I'll be like, if I want something to be a bit deserty, I'll just be like, oh, it's in Arizona or it's in Texas, you yeah. know, like... So I, I sometimes cheat a little bit, but um, yeah, it's kind of like I do a little bit 
and on the stream, I, I, I don't know if I was streaming earlier today and I was like, I was partway through something and I was like, huh, I don't know if this military guy would call it this or call it that. And I was just going to be like, pose worth, what do I call this? Yeah, what's, what's, a, because, what's um, a terminology that would be used? Yeah. yeah. Which we talked so, about earlier. There's that There's that whole, you know, what is the terminology that's, that's used? And even there are people that write, and then, that, you know, even in the U.S., and they write for someone who's been in the military. And yeah. people that have been in the military go, we would never, that's how, wouldn't be how we breach a door. Yeah. And so they have to research, okay, well, how does the military breach door? What is the, you know, how do they communicate and stuff like that? So, yeah, that research. I don't always get that right, but I try for the most part. Um, I do sometimes have, like, people from the military reaching out to me and being like, I don't think that's how the military would do it. And I have a few bad reviews where they're like, soldiers wouldn't do that. And I'm like, it's a fantasy world. I don't care. (laughs) Like, to some degree, I'm like, okay, this is urban fantasy. They're not going to be... Like perfectly the same. Would a soldier react to a dragon the same way they react react to a human? How do you know if the soldier is going to do what the soldier is trained to do if they're confronted by a dragon? So sometimes I'm a little bit like I feel like I should have more artistic license than if I was trying to write like a proper full military book. Um, So sometimes I will be like, I don't care. I got that wrong. Um, then there are other times where I'm very much like, okay, I want the correct terminology. I want to know what a military person would do in this situation. Like, I want to know what the protocol is. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Do you have, um, people that will compare your, you know, the Dragon of Shadow and Air series to this one? Are there people that have crossed over and what do you see as the, the differences between the two? Yeah. Um, some people have crossed over, um, most people seem to be really liking it, um, which is good, which is good. Um, generally, the feedback seems to be quite positive that I've written another good series, so I'm happy with that. It's it's not massively different. I know I, the Dragon of Shadow and Air is, is very much an elf with a dragon companion, um, and then the dragon apparent is very much the main can- character is the dragon. But in terms of, like, the feel of the stories, the kind of the types of plot, I've still got a kick-ass female lead, I've still got dragons. I've still got magic. Um, I've still got trying to hide that from humanity and how that goes when it comes out. I've still got all of the usual elements and I've still got the big action scenes and the battles with the bad guys. And like, to me, those are like, they're my trademarks. Then all of my books, no matter what genre I write, to some degree, those things are in there. So it's still those kinds of things. Yeah. You seem to have a gift for developing secondary side characters. Uh, you know, you talked about the the fringe books where there's you know some side characters in there. Obviously, the 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 shadow. Gosh, I can't pronounce it. Holy cow! Dragon, Dragon of Shadow, shadow and Air. Wow. Uh, there's a lot of really great side characters in in there as well. That it's like I want to know more about this character. I want to know more about that character. Do we get that in the Dragon Apparent series? Um, I try to as much as possible. Um. It's kind of one of those things where I'm like, I feel like I discover them a lot of the time along with everyone else. Okay. I'm I'm very much what they would call a discovery writer, although I have an outline for a lot of the books. My outlines can be very bare bones. So I'm writing a chapter and I've got maybe a sentence or two of what needs to go in the chapter and it's just the basic plot. And I'm basically, I feel like sometimes I'm just throwing stuff at my characters and letting my characters react and I'm writing how they would react so unless my characters know and are going to tell me, I don't know. So it's kind of one of those things where I tend to kind of go with with the gut of what it feels like it should do and where it should go and who you should get to know. And if my main character doesn't know it because I'm writing from this really tight first person limited point of view, if my main character doesn't know it, then neither do we. Yeah. Like if she doesn't get to find out about it, then neither do we. But then I'm hoping like, you know, over time to build up some of those into into where you get bigger pictures and you get more of the side characters um and i've got a, a few ideas for some spin-off series for some of them where you they will be from the point of view of some of the side characters nice awesome do you have any other you know things for this book series or in this world and and stuff like that you want to talk about that at all maybe just a little yes bit? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I mentioned on Facebook today, I have a little bit of announcement. The Dragon Apparent series is going to become an entire universe. Um, we're going to be calling it the Dragon Protectorate universe. Okay. Um, and 
as I was saying a little bit earlier about meeting with a, a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago to talk about the magic um, of the universe or the world and, and build on the magic system a lot. We, we've um, we've done a lot of work on the magic system and it feels like it, it has a lot more scope because um, as much as I love Dragon of Shadow and Air, I don't know what else to do with it. Like people keep being like, can we have a sequel series? Can we know about more of these people? And I'm like, I don't want to give them... I don't want to give the reader something I can't deliver well. Yeah. But um, the more we've talked about the magic system of the Dragon Apparent series, the more it's been like, actually, there is so much more scope for this. So um, we are developing a second series set on Earth in the same world um, under the Dragon Protectorate universe. And I'm actually dressed as the main character today. Um, so this is kind of a bit of a cosplay. She's going to be a little of a steampunk um in human form anyway it's going to be another shift the dragon okay. um and we're going to call her artemisia so All right. she's going to be a silver dragon called artemisia um and she's going to be the the main character of the next series but it's going to be in the same same universe as dragon apparent that's awesome that's super cool and exciting do you know when the the first of that's going to come out do you have an idea um, or is it just like this is the announcement we don't have details we we don't have massive details yet it's it's a very complicated process with the publisher to to get the publishing dates because of the way they work and as I've said they they bring out rapid release they like to make sure that they're going to have several books before they even start the process um, and I've had a lot of health issues the last year or so and I'm the last few deadlines for the Dragon Apparent series I'm right up to the wire and I'm I don't like being right up to the wire with my deadlines I like to have plenty of breathing room to to allow yeah. the book to be the best it can be. So I'm I'm desperately trying to finish the 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 last few books in the Dragon Apparent series. I'm writing book eight now. Um, so hopefully that will be finished within the next six to six to eight weeks. Um, and then I'm actually going to take as much time off as I want. <laughs> um, I'm, I haven't actually taken any time off more than the odd day or two since 2018. So I think it's time I took a little bit of time off and let my health recover a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do that and then I'm gonna I'm gonna sit down and really make sure this new series is exactly what I want it to be. And at that point is when we'll pick the dates and we'll we'll start working about a schedule and deadlines and making sure I can hand them in without breaking myself. Um, I would hope that the first one or two would be out this year, okay. towards the end of this year. Sweet. Have there been thoughts since you're making a whole universe and if, you know, if this is just going to pick up massive steam and just steamroll, is there thoughts of making an RPG book series system or series for this world? It's uh, funny you should say that. We actually considered it with one of the other series we did. Okay. It didn't do as well. So we ended up having to kind of abandon it. But yes, I would I would be very interested if a, if a book series takes off well enough to to do some kind of ttrpg manual or something like that would be a lot of fun because that would you know we've talked a little bit on the side that like you are into role playing and like role playing is yeah. that something you would role play yeah. on on try and role play on stream to get a get an idea yeah. or to like to test yeah, out the possibly. system well I'm, I'm already in the cosplay for this one right. so there you go. i already have the full outfit so um yeah quite possibly that would be a lot of fun um i actually have a, a lit rpg book um and a series my Guild of the Eternal Flame series is kind of, I want to say Dungeons and Dragons based, but that is really not a good thing to say right now. So no, it's, it's tabletop it's not, RPG fantasy based. It's, it's tabletop RPG based. Um, so I, I, you know, I came up with some concepts for characters and that was literally me sitting down one day and being like, I want to play a tabletop RPG by myself because there's no one to play with today. So I, I was like, you know what, this is just like writing a book. So I can't, I, I got the character sheets and I, I, I was the DM for a while and then I was the player for a while and then I was the DM for a while and then I was the player for a while. And that's how my Guild of the Eternal Flame series actually happened. That's how that started. And that's still how I write them. Um, I've got three of those at the moment. They're, they're a much slower series to write, but I still write them as if they're a tabletop RPG. So that one's a nice, easy one. But then um, the Pyramid, which was um, one of the homebrew campaigns that we were playing um, on the Guild of... Uh, the Gilded Mimic Network streams. Yep. Um, we have the link for that in our live chat. And for yeah. those listening, it's twitch.tv slash Gilded Mimic Network. Yeah, that's where we play. Um, we're not playing the Pyramid at the moment. I'm going to switch it to a different TTRPG than the one it's currently based on. Okay. Um, but when we do get back to playing that, 
um, I'm writing essentially the origin story of the pyramid because as it's been revealed on the stream, it's a sentient pyramid. It's a okay. sentient dungeon. So I'm writing the origin story of that as a book. So I have a lot of crossover already. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it would be good at some point to get proper manuals out there and some campaigns that people can play as well, especially for the Guild of the Eternal Flame. Right. It should be really, really easy for me to turn those three books into campaigns that people can play along with as well. Have you ever had an RPG game where you sat down and they're like, okay, people make characters and you're like, I'm going to make this character from my book? Um, not really. Um, I try and keep them separate. I'm, I'm a little bit aware that people can accuse you of a self-insert. Yeah. And I'm a bit like, I, I try not to do that. Yeah. But then again, with the pyramid, I'm like, okay, this book's entirely based on the pyramid and the, it's the DM's character. The DM is the pyramid. So right. like it's, it's kind of another one where you end up being a bit of a self-insert. Um, I think I worry about it too much. I think it would be more fun. What about the other way future. around where you role played for a while and you love the character so much it became a character in a book? Yeah, I think I, I would consider that. I think if I if I felt that the whatever I was playing as it was role playing the character, if I felt that their journey wasn't finished, I might consider something like that to finish off their journey. Have you ever thought about or been approached or, or anything like that for working, writing for a, a game company where, you know, say a shadow run and wants to put out a book or a Pathfinder or, you know, I don't want to say Star Wars because it's Star Wars, but, you know, something like that where an <laughs> RPG system or company, say Cobalt Press is like, we're going to put out some novels. Have you ever thought about doing writing? I for would love like to that? do something like that. I think that would be a lot of fun to write with a company like that. Um, that would definitely be bringing the two worlds together in a, in a really nice way. Um, I haven't been approached. I haven't approached anyone either. So <laughs> I feel a bit like there's a lot on my plate at the moment. Mm -hmm. and I'm very careful not to overload it um, until I've had a break. Um, and then we'll see what I end up doing. Um, I, I'm currently talking to someone about writing for a game. Um, and actually writing the game dialogue and, and storyline and stuff like that. So I don't know if how likely that will be, but that's yeah. something that I might add in a little bit of along the way as well. It would be a it would be a, a side job, yeah, but for sure. I don't want to ever detract too much from writing my books and delivering the books that people like for me. So yeah. I would I'm always going to prioritize writing my books. I think that makes sense. All right, the ultimate question, the biggest question of the night: Do you prefer to be a GM or a player? Oh, that's a tough one. It, it, I think it really depends. Um, there are some GMs that I love being a player for, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, being in their worlds that I love. But there's also, like, we could talk about it, uh, me and Poseworth and Bear from the, from the stream, a lot about me bringing out my inner Loki. I really, really like torturing players. <laughs> There is something very satisfying about hurling something at your players and being like, let's see if you can survive this. And I've actually <laughs> killed one of Poseworth's characters off in the pyramid stream. Um, and it was very satisfying. So I, I love being a GM too. I don't think I could choose, to be honest. It really does depend who I'm playing with. Okay. Um, but yeah, there are, there are great benefits to both. I, there, there's an element of being a player where I get I feel like I have a bit more free reign and I have a bit more time to think about um, what I want my character to do. So I find that on some levels easier, so especially if I'm tired. Yeah. I, I can sometimes be like, actually, I just need to play today rather than have to be in charge, um, especially on the streams. Um, I feel like when I'm GMing on the streams, you don't just have the responsibility of keeping your players on track. You have the responsibility of making sure it's good for the audience as well. Um, so I feel like, that can be a lot of pressure, but equally, I, I'm very happy to improvise and work under pressure in those kind of environments. I kind of, to some degree, I thrive off the having to think on my feet and, and work out story as I go. And having written as many books as I have, I kind of feel a bit like by now I should really know story and really know characters. And if I can't yeah. do it by thinking on my feet, then I've not been learning fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> million words right you just million words in a four-hour section well oh, i wish <laughs> no, I, know, like, I, I write about just over a thousand words an hour on average um, i might get three or four words in a couple hours i don't 
<laughs> I didn't used to write that fast. I can remember, like, especially the first few years where I'd be like, I wrote 500 words today. And I just spent like five hours doing it. <laughs> Like now I'm like, if I write 500 words in an hour, I'm like, I'm having a crap day, man. Yeah. <laughs> like this, this needs to be faster now. So, but it, it is just practice. There were, there were days I used to despair of ever getting anywhere near a million words a year. And now I'm like, yeah, it's good. We can do that. Yeah, for sure. So they can find you role playing, as I said, on twitch.tv slash gilded mimic network. Uh, so you role play there. You also. Mm-hmm. Do writing on your Twitch at twitch.tv yes. backslash Talia Beckett. Uh, are you? Do you have any other events or things coming up that you're going to be at? With, you know, maybe in the next year or so. I know you said uh, you have some other things going on. You can't quite commit to things. Yeah. But tell us um, again, because I'm trying to take a bit of a break, I haven't committed to anything yet. Um, we're hoping to start doing a regular sort of anniversary. Um, sort of like event on December the 4th every year. Okay. So there is going to be something on December the 4th this year. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but there will be some kind of live event somewhere, some kind of, I don't want to say book signing. I'm not a fan of an event that's just a, I'm going to be sat behind a table signing books. I like there to be something more to it than that. Yeah. So there'll probably be something more like a party or a, we'll go to a pub, a British pub or something. Yeah. Um. So it will be something like that on December the 4th. That's the only one that I have completely set in stone. Um, I'm also hoping to get back to Vegas in November um, for the the big author event that I went to last year there because that was a lot of fun and I met a lot of people. Um, it would be really good to meet some more fans. But other than that, um, the middle part of the year, I'm kind of trying to work out what I've got the energy for. I want to make sure I get the books done first. So Yeah. Take care of yourself personally yeah. and health wise and all that kind of stuff is I need a break. Yeah. I need a break. So I don't burn out. So the stories are still good. People can find your Facebook group, Talia Beckett's army of fantastical creatures. Uh, you can look it up there. If you're in chat, we have the link right there for you as well. You're on Instagram, Talia Beckett underscore author. Uh, you're also, as we said on Twitch, twitch.tv backslash Talia Beckett. Are, are you planning on being on other, you know, uh, uh, TikTok, Twitter, stuff like that? Um, I probably won't go on Twitter, I okay. have to admit. I'm not a Twitter fan. Okay. Um, TikTok we are talking about, but again, it's finding the time and making sure it fits. So yeah. if I end up on TikTok, it won't be again until after I've had a break. Um, I'm on Discord. I try and make sure I'm active on the Facebook. Um, I have a newsletter as well. Um, yeah, somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> Somewhere. Um, I can't remember the link for that one. Um, you just have to post it on your Facebook and then there we go. Yes. Yes. You can get, you, actually, you can get to the um, the newsletter from the Facebook group and you can get to the newsletter from the Discord as well. So There we go. Um, I, I try and be active in those more um, and on the stream than anything else. And those in the live stream can see the link to Discord right on the chat. Uh, those in the podcast, you'll just have to... Uh, shoot me a message or go to the Facebook page and, and find it, find it through there. Cause it's a lot of numbers and letters and stuff like that. So it's not easy to say via podcast form. <laughs> Jess slash Talia. Thank you so much for joining us. Stick around. We're going to be doing some live stream Q and A's with the people here in the live stream. We've already got a couple questions built up ready for you. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, friends and enemies, heroes and villains, February 20th, we're going to be joined by Kobold Press's Kobold in Chief, Wolfgang Bauer. We will talk about the origins and evolution of Kobold Press, their Kickstarter projects, Project Black Flag, their new RPG system, and more. That's going to be, again, February 20th. The podcast will be available to listen to on the 21st. March 13th, comic book writer Erica Schultz is going to be joining us. She's written for Image Comics, Marvel Comics, DC, Dark Horse, Aftershock, Dynamite, and so much more. She's written Charmed, Xena, Daredevil, and The Deadliest Bouquet, not to mention a plethora of others. That will again be March 13th. The podcast will be available on the 14th. So please make sure to rate, review all of the things, click all of the buttons, subscribe, follow, and all of the locations you can find us. It helps our guests so much so. So thank you all so much for hanging out. Thank you, Jess slash Talia. And thank you for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again.
for Epic Realms.